You know, our human concept of freedom means living free from constraints to do what we want. You know, some of my friends have encouraged me to start planning for financial freedom in my senior years. Yes, I'm actually 51. So they told me, hey, you need to start thinking about uh, your senior years. Attaining financial freedom is objective. Many of us, even the Singapore government, is urging us citizens to prepare for our future retirement. And financial freedom, what it usually means for us is that it means that we have enough savings, financial investments, and cash to afford the life we desire for ourselves and our families. Beloved, I'm not saying that we do not plan well. We need to steward our resources for our senior years. But in God's economy, we are freed from constraints, not to do whatever we desire, but we are freed from something for God. Beloved, when we trust in Christ, we are freed from sin, but to for what end? You know, we've been going through the book of Exodus and we saw from the first half of Exodus, God heard the cries of His people. God kept His promises and delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through many signs and wonders. And now, in chapter 18, the nation of Israel is at Sinai, at the base of the mountain of God, just as God said it would happen in Exodus 3.12. God has graciously delivered the nation of Israel and brought them to Himself. But what are the Israelites rescued for? What are they redeemed for? From chapter 19 onwards, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. God graciously speaks of the covenant in terms that the Israelites would understand. So what God did was He patterned the covenant He makes after the Asian Near East suzerainty treaties. So basically, this is a treaty in the Asian Near East between a stronger supreme king and a weaker vassal king. So God Himself commits to a covenant relationship in which God pledges Himself to be the suzerain or the supreme king over Israel. At the same time, Israel is seen as God's vessel or God's followers and is expected as part of the covenant to be faithful to the covenant. And as part of this covenant, there are obligations placed on the vessel. So if you are a vessel to the Supreme King, there are regulations and rules you need to follow. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 then describes in essence what these responsibilities are. For today, as we look at chapter 20, uh, verses 22 to chapter 23, what is known as the Book of the Covenant, in here it further details how these obligations framed by the Ten Commandments are to be lived out in the everyday context of the Israelites. So the Israelites are freed from captivity, from slavery, to obey God's voice and keep God's commandment. And if they do so, they will be God's treasured possession among all peoples and will be God's kingdom of priests and a holy nation, distinct and consecrated to God. So we are freed from sin. For what end? To do what? The big idea for today's passage is this. God's people are freed to love God and love others by obeying God's law. 
Remember the Ten Commandments which was covered last week. The first four of the Ten Commandments relate to our vertical relationship with God or with loving God. And the second six of the Ten Commandments relate to our horizontal relationship with each other or loving our neighbours. So the Book of Covenant from Exodus 20-22 onwards details and elaborates further what it means to love God and love others. So again, the big idea, God's people are free to love God and love others by obeying God's law. And there are three parts to today's uh, message. We love God through proper worship. We love others through relating justly. And God's people are free to obey God's law and receive blessings. You know, and as we cover today's passage, please keep this in mind. Remember that God speaks to a people that He has already rescued, a people already redeemed by God. So keeping the commandments and regulations doesn't somehow rescue or save them. And the commandments and regulations teach us about God's character. It shows us why we need Jesus because we cannot fully keep God's law. And the laws and commandments and regulations also serve as a guide to godliness because it tells us what to aim for and then helps us grow in the faith. You know, there is a lot of text to cover today. I'm covering something like four or five chapters. So what we'll be doing is we'll be taking a bird's eye view of the chapters, covering the main ideas as God meant for us to understand it, and then dipping into some of the passages for details. So let's, let's get started. Firstly, we love God through proper worship. So Exodus 20, 22 to, 20, uh, to the end of 23 is known as the Book of the Covenant. And as, as you read through, you realize that the Book of the Covenant is actually book-ended by something. It is book-ended by the worship of God. So it tells us something. It tells us that worship frames the entire Book of the Covenant. Worship is important. So wh why, why is worship so important? You know, I'm dating myself here. I really think that the best movie uh, was the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. And for those of us who remember that, and many of us have seen that, you remember Gollum from the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Gollum, that wretched creature, he was obsessed with the One Ring. And in that story, the One Ring represented sin. You know, Gollum was so obsessed with the One Ring, calling it my precious, that you could almost say that Gollum worshipped the one ring. And as a result, he became twisted and ugly. And in his interactions with Frodo and Sam, if you remember their interactions, he acted with great evil and maliciousness. Because, beloved, we become what we worship. And that which we become, we behave accordingly towards our neighbours. So it's no surprise that the worship of God Book ends these passages because a kingdom of priests and a holy nation should properly worship God. And once our vertical relationship with God is right and proper, then we will relate rightly in our horizontal relationship with others. So look with me to Exodus 20, Exodus 20, verses 22 to 26. Verse 22, this is what God's word say. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that have talked with you from heaven, 
You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stones, you shall not build it of huge stones. For if you will your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Israel's relationship with the Lord is her first priority. And we see here in verse 22, worship is a response to God already revealing Himself. And proper worship of God obeys the first two commandments. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. We see this in verse 23, which basically restates the first two commandments. God alone should be the object of our worship. And we should not make idols or have idols that will replace God in our worship. And in verse 24, God gives precise instructions for building an altar. The altar, as we see here, was to be constructed so for the subsequent covenant confirmation in Exodus 24, 5, where the burnt offering, burnt offerings are offerings that are made for atonement, for sin and consecration, uh, to show the, the uh, person who brings the offerings devotion and commitment to God. And it's also for the peace offerings. Peace offerings basically celebrate fellowship with God. The altar was where these two offerings was to be offered. And God again gives the instructions for a simple altar of earth in verses 24 to 25. And these instructions relate to two factors, if you look at it. It relates to holiness and idolatry. Because holiness belongs to God, the altar must be His and His alone. It must be distinctly for God. And a part of how He accepts unholy people and makes them holy due to the transfer of guilt from them to animals. Therefore, the altar could not be something humans could take ownership of just because they work at it with their hands, with the tools that they may work on with any other uh, stonework project. Likewise, it is not to be fancy enough to be light or function as a constructed idol. Just as in the same way that an animal sacrifice was to be perfect, the stones of the stone of the altar must be whole and complete, reflecting God's distinct holiness without blemish. And lastly, because the early Israelites did not wear underwear under their tunic, they were not to construct stairs so that they would not accidentally expose themselves as they climb up the stairs. So those offering the sacrifices must be modest. So what do we see here? We see the worship of God ought and should be about God and no other. And we ought to avoid idolatry. You know, beloved, when we gather for corporate worship on Sundays, God and His Word, His Word which make God's known, should be our primary focus. We should avoid performance or showmanship creeping into our services in case we make an idol out of performance or people doing the, the performance. As a congregation, we should focus on the Word and on God's revealed... Uh, we focus on God and His revealed Word. And we should not get distracted by what people do or don't do. That's proper worship. 
But let's look now at the second half of the bookend, which gives further instruction on worship by Israel. Turn with me to Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. Please look at these verses. I will not be reading the verses out. Uh, and these verses form a distinct section in the book of the covenant. Because you look at these verses, they talk about worship through keeping the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Rest and refreshment are essential to Sabbath, uh, observing the Sabbath. And this recalls how God gave rest to the uh, Israelites after their harsh captivity in Egypt. And the instructions of observing uh, the seventh year and the seventh day highlights God's concern for the poor, slaves, the foreign residents and animals. And God expects exclusive loyalty and worship from the Israelites. We see this in verse 13. God's instructions highlight how the Israelites are to worship the one true God, the one true God only in a world where the nations worship many idols. In addition, as part of their worship, you see in verse 14 to 16, uh, Moses gives details of three festivals, three pilgrimage festivals where the Israelites need to make their way to the centre of worship. God graciously used the year because they were agricultural society, so the agricultural year, the natural rhythm, to encourage people to worship God's name throughout the year. The festival of the unleavened bread celebrates God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, and this took place in the spring. This festival comes before the harvest time, and unleavened bread recalls their quick and hasty departure from Egypt. Next comes the festival of the harvest. This celebrates the first phase of the harvest in the late spring. It marks the gathering of the first fruits from the crops. And these first fruits, the best of it, uh, best of what they gather, they are to be offered to God. And this festival is celebrated seven weeks or almost 50 days after the harvest. Eventually, this was called Pentecost, which means 50, and this uh, Pentecost was associated with the Festival of Harvest. Next, we see the Festival of Ingathering. It also celebrates the harvest, and this comes at the end of the agricultural year in early fall. This festival eventually became known as the Festival of Tabernacles. What it does, it gives a visual picture. It helps Israelites recall how they live in tents, when they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. Verse 17 then instructs men to undertake this pilgrimage to the central sanctuary of worship. Uh, women are not excluded and they are, are eligible and encouraged to come. And related to this pilgrimage, we find that God prohibits the blood of a sacrifice with, with anything containing ease is to be unleavened, an instruction related to the Passover which marked the start of the festival of unleavened bread. We see this mention of first fruits associated with this instruction in the festival of harvest. Lastly, comes this weird little prohibition at the end against cooking a young goat in his mother's milk. This is probably because this practice was related to some pagan harvest worship and as Israelites, they need to keep their worship unadulterated and pure only to the Lord. So what do we see here? We see worship as given in the first bookend and we see worship given here. Beloved, we see that worship is important. Worship is ascribing wealth and honour to God. It is both an act and an attitude. 
is worshipping at the altar and worshipping God throughout the rhythms of life. Remember Romans 12.1? It tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We are to worship not just on specific activities and at, uh, with specific activities and events, we are to worship with our whole bodies in our whole life. So we worship as we gather, uh, gather as a corporate body on Sunday, and we worship throughout the other six days. Christians, we belong to God, and in a broad sense, worship now includes offering our whole life to God. We are called to worship God wholeheartedly. We are to offer ourselves to God wholeheartedly. You know, just as God said in the instructions, the fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Verse 18, uh, second half of verse 18. It seems like a strange regulation or rule here. But this regulation here is not about keeping the kitchen clean. It had an essentially spiritual purpose. You know, modern day for us, fat today is considered unhealthy but in the ancient world, it was considered the choicest, juiciest part of an animal. And the temptation for the Israelite was to like, leave some fat on the altar unburnt so that they can return the next day to get it. And we see this further flesh out in verse 19. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Putting these two, two together, what it means for us, we are to offer our best wholeheartedly without reserve to the Lord. Don't we face the same temptation as well in our Christian life? You know, we offer ourselves to God, but at the same time, we hold apart back. You know, we are willing to serve God, but we want to keep something for ourselves. So, so we worship Him on the Sundays, but not in our daily work. We praise Him in our worship, but we don't discuss Him with our friends. We try to please Him with the ministry we do in church, but, but not in our hobbies and our recreation. We are willing to help the needy, but we are not willing to give up the comforts of home. But God says to us, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Beloved, are we worshipping and serving God wholeheartedly? Or are we holding something back for ourselves? In addition, we observe here that biblical worship is always corporate. We see that the nation of Israel gather for the national festivals. You know, as individuals, we can carry out some form of worship activity by ourselves using some elements of corporate worship like prayer, or singing praise songs, but we cannot alone worship in the manner instructed in Scripture. This is because all proper worship on earth points to and prepare all of us believers for our eventual worship in heaven. And if you look at Revelation, worship in heaven is constant, consistently pictured as a corporate activity where the nations gather together. So beloved, have we consistently prioritized gathering as a church for corporate worship on Sunday wholeheartedly? And how, how do we prioritize uh, corporate worship? 
we prepare ourselves not on Sunday morning, but on the night before, Saturday evening. We prepare ourselves well so that we can wholeheartedly worship God on Sunday. We prepare ourselves well by leaving our house 15, 20 minutes earlier so that we get to church earlier and start our interactions with our uh, fellow uh, um, church members. Do we prioritize corporate worship? Worship bookends this book of the covenant. And this framing tells us God wants all of life within the setting of worship, of our spiritual and religious devotion. We love others through relating justly. Exodus 21.1 opens with, Now these are the rules or regulations that you shall set before them. What we see here is this. God spent almost uh, four chapters elaborating on the Ten Commandments. So we see here that God means His law. He means this law that He gives to govern His people's lives. And obedience as the mark of their conduct in every aspect and activity of life. We just heard Matthew 5, 17 to 20 read. Jesus himself said in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If Christ has fulfilled the law for us, what then is the Christian's response to the law? Remember, the law given here to the Israelites is a response to a redemption, a rescue already accomplished by God. And the law as viewed by the Israelites is a positive undertaking. It is not a burden. It is liberation and freedom to live in ways that God wants us to live, loving Him and loving others. It is God's pattern of vertical and horizontal conduct for His people. True worship and love of neighbour comes into fullness, yes, with the coming of Christ. But for the Israelites then and for us now, it doesn't stop us from trying to obey the law. What then is the Christian's response to the law? We understand that we are not saved by our own efforts at law-keeping, but by Christ's supreme effort on the cross. But as Christians, we take God's law to heart, not legalistically, but as a pattern of godly conduct in God's world. And that pattern is best expressed in the law of love that Jesus uh, uh, talks about. For as we love others, we will be as perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And as we look at the book of the covenant, topics covered by in these few chapters, they are diverse and they are comprehensive. You know, they comprise regulations that uh, guide the household. They talk about uh, restitution and capital offences in society in verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. They talk about injuries to persons and animals in chapter 21, verses 18 to 36. It talks about protection of property, verses 22, uh, chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. It talks about finances and business, how we ought to do finance, uh, conduct our business. We see this in chapter 22, verse 7 to 15. It talks about sexual malpractice and defrauding of others. We see this in chapter 22, verses 16 to 17. We see capital offences in religion, chapter 22, verse 18 to 20. 
we see God's humane concern for the foreigners and the marginalized. We see this in chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. We see also it gives us rules for living under God's authority in the state, in church, or in personal character. Chapter 22, verse 28 to 31. We see how it gives instructions to live a life of integrity and to be honorable in our dealings with others. Chapter 23, verse 1 to 9. It also regulates the timetable of work. Chapter 22, verses 10 to 13. And it regulates religion. Chapter 22, verse 14 to 19. Don't worry, I would not read all of them. Okay? But, it, but I'm just reading this list because it shows us, it covers almost every aspect of the Christian life. Okay? Everything from how we interact with others to how we do business uh, to even laws that uh, talks about restitution and regulates uh, murder and, and so on. Okay? And we notice that these regulations, of course, they are intended to be illustrative as models or case laws that apply the Ten Commandments and for us to draw principles from rather than exhaustive. But nevertheless, the scope of what it covers is comprehensive. So what does it tell us? It tells us that God wants entrance into all of life. All of life is His arena. Whether your household how you conduct yourself in social situations, how you do business, all of life is God's arena. And He has instructions for all of life. The Word of God enters and directs every aspect of life. On the other hand, we as God's people, we must bring all of our life under the scrutiny of God's Word and live all of life as His Word directs. If chapter 19, verse 5 tells us, if you would indeed obey God's voice and keep His covenant, insists on obedience, it insists on obedience as the response of the redeemed. And we see in uh, chapter 20, verse 2 to 17, the Ten Commandments, it sketches the primary area and, and foundational principles of this obedience. That what we see here in this book of the covenant from chapter 20 to chapter 23 it extends the limits of the obedience to our very limits of personal, domestic, social, and church living. God's Word brings all our life into the obedience of God. Beloved, you know, many of us want our faith safely packed away in a box and kept there. Because if we really know what God's word is, we recognize that it's dangerous because it wants itself to in every area of our life. The Book of Covenant says that this is not an option. True religion is not just for Christmas, Good Friday, or Easter. It is for all of life. True faith and religion cannot be confined. Our Lord demands entrance into every single aspect of our life. He wants to, to be involved in all aspects of His life or His redeemed. And He looks to govern every aspect by His revealed truth, the Bible. You know, the Baptist pastor Spurgeon was not only known for his faithful and bold proclamation of the gospel, 
but he also opened a pastor training college and also a charity house and several orphanages. He was not only concerned with serving God by knowing God and proclaiming the gospel, he was also concerned about applying God's law by loving his poor neighbours, by justly providing for them. So here we talk about justly providing for them. We talk about biblical justice. So, so what exactly is biblical justice? Biblical justice broadly comprise, uh, comprises relating rightly to God and relating rightly to others. Biblical justice has God giving us the standard of what it means to relate rightly to our neighbours. Biblical justice is also equitable since as human beings, we are made in God's image. Biblical justice is also generous, just as God has been generous to us in Christ Jesus. And as we see chapters 21 to 23, we see how God gives regulations in the book of the covenant for His people to love others by treating one another justly. And we see the principles of relating justly illustrated in Exodus 21, 2 to 11, where it regulates the household and it talks about slaves. Turn to these verses, chapter 21, verses 2 to 11. I will not read them, uh, but just look at them as I, I, I talk on the text. But first off, slavery in this context, in this Old Testament context, is different from the oppressive slavery where enslaved people are forcibly taken with little or no rights and treated little more than uh, property. This is not that kind of slavery. Slavery here and the case laws that regulated in uh, verses 2 to 6 is more talk talking about debt slavery or what is known as indentured servitude, meaning that uh, because you're so poor, you sell yourself to this household working as a servant, as an indentured household for this, uh, indentured uh, servant for this household. So this, this arrangement offered offered a means for survival for the Hebrews, Israelites, who became poor and had few other means of survival. And you see that the emphasis of the law here is on the rights of the servant. The masters are not permitted to mistreat them. And this emphasis is rooted in Israel's history of once being slave in Egypt. And they were oppressed as slaves and they were not to be like that, uh, not to be like their former Egyptian masters. And we see here something that's different from the rest of uh, the Asian Near East and how they treat uh, uh, slaves or indentured servants. We see here that there's also regulations that allow for release of indentured servants in the seventh year. And this is linked to the concept of Sabbath. And in some circumstances, an individual might wish to remain a servant, preferring the security provided by belonging to the household. And there's also provision for generously providing for him in this context. So what we see here in these regulations, in these provisions by God, is generosity, going above and beyond what usually is done in the surrounding context, and also equity. We see in verses 7 and 11, it regulates another situation. Because in difficult financial circumstances, a father might kind of sell his daughter as an indentured servant, with the expectation that she will become the wife of the master or his son. In these circumstances, the woman does not go free like the male slave in verse 7, for she expects marriage. And if the master becomes dissatisfied with her, however, 
there is regulations here that protect the woman from exploitation. She cannot be sold to another person. Only her family may redeem her. A female indentured servant who is meant to be a wife must not be treated as a second-class citizen. And if she is not provided for fully, she must be released. So what we see here is equity, governing these circumstances in a context where women in other surrounding nations of his time, they have minimal rights or protection. So already, by keeping to these regulations, God's people will be distinct and different from the nations. We see also here rules for loving others through relating justly, extending even to the foreigners and to the marginalized. So look with me to Exodus 22, verse 21 to 27. Exodus verse 21. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. Let me read for us. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I, God, am compassionate. We see here a series of regulations and moral commands. They follow these regulations in these verses. And what they do is they prohibit mistreating of foreign residents and the marginalized. And these prohibitions, they are grounded in the history of the Israelites. They were mistreated as foreign residents in Egypt. And in the light of their experience, they must ensure that they do not act like the Egyptians. Widow, widows and fatherless children are often included with foreign residents because they are seen to be the poor and marginalized. And, and together, they comprise the most vulnerable members of society. You know, the absence of a husband or father will leave a woman or child open to exploitation by others. But God's regulation in here ensures that they are treated well, equitably, uh, as we see in verses 25 to 27. Uh, God warns the Israelites not to charge interest when they lend money to the poor uh, because unscrupulous lenders can easily exploit those forced to borrow money due to poverty. What we see here is that Israelites are to exercise generosity towards the marginalized, towards the poor and the needy. God instructs His people to love their neighbours by loving others through relating and interacting justly. We are relate to one another with equitably, equity and generosity. Beloved, how do we love others among us? Are we relating justly with them? What about the foreigners in our midst, domestic helpers and guest workers? Now, especially domestic helpers who are part of our church, do we treat them with generosity? Do we treat them with impartiality and equity? Do we treat them as family? You know, I'm encouraged that I, I know some of situations where our members treat them really like family. 
If they are ill, do we care for them? What about the guest workers who help build our economy? Do we extend care towards them? More than that, what are our interactions with others in our church? Do we treat each other impartially and with equity, meaning uh, with equal, equally? Do we interact differently according to their social status? Are we generous with our time and resources towards those in our congregation with needs? Beloved, we are to be a distinctive people. We are to be distinct by obeying God's word. The Lord desires His people to be distinct or holy. And what He wants in us, however, is the distinctiveness that arise as a byproduct of obeying His word. Because as we obey His word to love Him and love others, we are different, become distinct from the nations around us. He wants us to live in the courts of earth according to the rules of the courts of heaven. And we see as we are committed to obedience, we are met with God's blessing. And we see this in the final section in Exodus 23 verses 10 uh, verses 10 to Exodus 24, uh, verse 18. We see that God's people are fit to obey God's law and to receive blessings. This long section of the book of the covenant, which I just covered, leads to two passages of grace and reassurance. It's as if the Lord was saying to His people, yes, you have made a demanding and almost scary commitment to me, but I want you to be equally aware of my gracious, reassuring provision. And we see here, as we end this message, God provides two assurances. Firstly, the angel of the Lord will prepare their way ahead, bringing them into the land of promise prepared for them. And the obedience is key to the angel's presence and blessings. Secondly, we see here in these two uh, uh, sections that there is a provision within the sacrificial system of the covenant to cover and cater for when God's people fail to obey Him. And this becomes increasingly clear in the ceremony of covenant confirmation in Exodus chapter 24, where the people, as they again promised obedience, found that they were covered by the blood of the covenant. So Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, 33 which forms the last part of the book of the covenant. I won't read it, uh, but as you look at this passage, just focus on how the Israelites will benefit from their unique relationship with God. If you look at Exodus 23, verse 20, 33, we find that the angel is God's messenger and he has his authority, for God's name is in him. And through this angel of the Lord, God will bring the Israelites to the place he has prepared for them. And to enjoy success, the Israelites must do all God requires of them. Obedience guarantees possession of the land. Disobedience to God's law and regulations will result in exile. And verses 23-26 tells us that Israelites must not worship other gods, for the covenant requires them to serve the Lord exclusively. Consequently, they must destroy anything that might uh, prompt them or tempt them to worship other gods. God promises to bless His people, to bless them if they worship Him alone. But if you uh, read your Bible and think ahead, you know that there are times when they settle in the land of promise. We see there their repeated failure to worship 
God alone. They fall into idolatry. You know, the Lord promises to defeat Israelites' enemies. He outlines the boundaries of the land, a promise to the Israelites, verse 31. And we find that this gracious uh, gift of the land, uh, the Israelites finally occupied it during the reigns of David and Solomon. But because of the disobedience, they subsequently lost much of it when they were, uh, went into exile. So what God he, uh, highlights for us here is His covenant relationship with Israelites and their responsibility to obey Him. But as we see, uh, the warnings of not uh, worshipping other gods will go unheeded because the pagan gods of Canaan will provide to be, uh, prove to be a snare for Israel. So in the light of this, we know that they failed or they will fail we see that the covenant confirmation ceremony, we see God's grace shine even more brightly because we see even in when the Israelites make the covenant with God and God made the covenant with Israelites, God there made a provision for their disobedience just as He made a provision for our disobedience. So look with me to Exodus 24, verses 3 to 11. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountains and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with these words. Then Moses with Aaron, Nadab, and Behu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel that was under his feet as it was, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Moses communicated to Israel all that God had said to him. So whatever God said to him, uh, recorded in the book of the covenant, he communicated to the Israelites. And the Israelites confirmed their commitment to obey God. They said with great gusto, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses proceeds to arrange for the confirmation of the covenant, for the cutting of the covenant. They built an altar that was offering of sacrifices, and this refuse the instructions given in Exodus 20, 24. And Moses sealed the covenant by sprinkling sacrificial blood on the altar and on the people. We see this in verses 6 to 8. They offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to, to uh, set apart the people, to consecrate the people. And he sprinkled the blood on the people and those touched by the blood, they were made holy. What we see here, God, even at this point, when they cut the covenant, when they confirm the covenant, God is making a provision for the people to be covered by the blood of the covenant. Even though they said in verse 3 and verse 7 
that they will obey all that God instructed. God knows that in our fallenness and sinfulness, in our inability, we will not fully obey all that is written in the book of the covenant. This sprinkling of blood on the people points to the consecration through the blood of Christ. We see this actually referred to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 to 26. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 to 26. In the last part of this uh, verses, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 24 to 26, it tells us, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But hear this, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Beloved, the good news for us is this, is that when we fail to obey God, and we will disobey because you look at all the regulations in the book of the covenant, we cannot abide by them all. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ puts away our sins so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. You know, my non-Christian friends, if you're here among us today, some of you may, may not have put place of trust in Christ. Know that you cannot fully obey God and you have fallen short of His regulations and you justly fall under God's judgment. But there is a way out. Or knowledge that you have failed to obey. Believe that Jesus Christ has put away sin by sacrificing Himself once and for all. Confess that you need Jesus and trust in Him for only He can deliver you from sin. Now, if this is what you want to do, feel free to speak to your Christian friend who have brought you, or you can speak to any of uh, GBC elders after this service. Beloved, what about us, those of us who already place our trust in Jesus? Remember this, this gracious provision of the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ is our hope and joy. Jesus' blood and righteousness has freed us from sin and enabled us to enter, and not only enter, to enjoy God's presence. And may the joy of the Lord encourage you to love God and love others by obeying God's law. Through the blood of the covenant fulfilled in Christ, we can access God's holy presence. In fact, after the confirmation of the covenant we see in this uh, passage, you know, the mountain's lower part is no longer out of bounds to the Israelites. And we see representatives of the people make their way and ascend part of the way towards the summit. And looking upward, they see a small part of God's divine glory. Okay, you look at this, it's, it's a passage where they see only the sapphire pavement under God's feet. And, and they are able to worship from a distance but that is for them in a lesser way. But beloved, for us in a greater way, because of this new relationship between us and God through the blood of new covenant uh, um, confirmed by Jesus Christ, we 
can come into God's presence and know Him fully. You know, the words of our old hymn describe what Jesus' blood accomplishes. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Because of the blood of Jesus, sinners like you and me can come into the joyous presence of a holy God and enjoy Him forever. Let us pray.